Welcome to the Greater Philly Church Podcast, where you'll learn to connect to Jesus and others through great teaching, inspirational stories, and relevant content. I'm Matt Manning, the pastor of Greater Philly Church, and my goal is to help you understand yourself, your relationships, and life in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Thanks so much for listening. I'm excited. We've got a great uh, message this morning I'm excited about. I love this series. I really enjoy it. Uh, I love the Beatitudes. It's Jesus' message, his Sermon on the Mount. And so this uh, message we're pulling from Matthew chapter 5, uh, it's actually a fuller, um, uh, Jesus' entire message is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it wasn't something he preached just one time, but it was a message he preached multiple different times. And so as we jump in this morning, we're looking at this, how much mercy do you show somebody? How much mercy should you show somebody or give towards somebody who's hurt you? It's kind of a difficult uh, topic, and we talked a little bit as we go through this series a lot of these ideas and concepts, it's kind of like looking at different, different angles of a diamond, different facets of a jewel. And so we talked last week about how to deal with unfair treatment. And so when do you have justice and when do you get revenge and how do you handle some of those things? And we're going to talk this week with a really, it's kind of a dovetail topic when we talk about mercy. How much and when do you show mercy? The Apostle Peter, he had this, this question, this burning question, how many times should I forgive somebody? And so he had that problem. He asked Jesus. He thought he had a really good answer. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But as we, by way of review, as we look back, we want to see that there's this kind of formulaic approach that Jesus gives to us when we look at these different topics with the Sermon on the Mount. About four weeks ago, we talked about this issue of humility, that if we want honor, we need to be humble. And it was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven kingdom of God. If we want to know comfort, we're going to have to face our hurts. If we want influence, as we looked at two weeks ago, we must learn to use restraint, to use meekness. Last week, we looked at when dealing with unfair treatment. If we want justice, we want fair treatment. We must learn how to handle things when there's unfair treatment, how to deal with those things and how to embrace them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. We'll go ahead and put that verse up on the screen here this morning. We'll look at this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain Mercy. How many of you remember uh, Full House? They like re- rebooted it uh, on Netflix. And Uncle Jesse, his, his like go-to phrase was what? Have mercy. You know, it was like, it was, like it's cool. Like John Stamos, he's the, he like doesn't look any different from when I remember him growing up as a kid. He always, he's got that, you know, Oikos Greek yogurt looking hair and, you know, greatness. But we talk about mercy. Have mercy. We look at this phrase here this morning. You, you have it there in your notes, the, the blanks. We'll put up on the screen, to get mercy, we have to give mercy. To be able to get mercy from God and from other people, we have to be willing to give mercy. The problem is, how do you know how to get mercy from God, and how do you know how to give mercy to other people? As we look here this morning, and you know it's just uh, by way of, of working through this and processing through this introduction, why is it hard for us to show people mercy? There's a couple of reasons there. Number one, showing mercy sometimes as we feel it's, it's a sign of weakness on our part. That if I show somebody mercy, that it'll seem like I'm just a doormat and people can walk all over me. Number two, if I show mercy, I might lose the upper hand. And we talked about that in relationships last week. When it comes to dealing with people and we feel like they have the upper hand, if I show them mercy, I'm, I'm just giving them uh, uh, the free way to go ahead and, and continue to have the upper hand. Number three, if I show mercy, it's just simply not fair. If I don't take care of me, if I don't defend me, then who will defend me? We find number four, 
if I show mercy, well, what are other people going to think about me? What are other people going to say about me behind my back that I just let people walk all over me and I don't have any self-respect? And, and we wonder and we worry about what other people are going to think. But fifthly, why is it hard to show mercy? Because sometimes the thought of having mercy, it's too painful for us. Why would I continue to help somebody or continue to give somebody a, 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 a get-out-of-jail-free card when it hurts me so much? As we see here, and we look in your notes, mercy always comes at a cost that somebody has to pay. Some place, somewhere in this whole situation, there has been an offense, there has been a hurt, there has been an injustice, and somebody has to absorb that. Somebody has to take that. Uh, I remember as a kid, I, I love Saturday afternoons because we'd, sometimes our family would be busy in the morning, we'd do stuff, and then Saturday afternoon, I would just like to binge watch uh, all the different TV shows and different things, and every once in a while, they would have a, a movie that would be on. And so I remember uh, in high school, The Green Mile was on one, like TNT or TBS or something like that. How many of you have ever seen The Green Mile? Anybody ever seen uh, Michael Clark Duncan? I think that's the guy, you know, the big black guy, and uh, Tom Hanks is in it. It's great. It's, a, it's actually interesting, just side note. Stephen King actually wrote the storyline for that. But if you remember, the magical uh, the side point was that Michael Clark uh, Duncan, his character had the capacity to take things from other people. Do you remember that? And so he was accused of killing those little girls, but he's actually trying to save them. And uh, Tom Hanks had some problems, and he, and he was able to touch Tom Hanks and take those problems from him. And then there's the bad guy who ended up in jail. And so if you remember, he grabs the bad guy, and he sends all the badness that, that Michael Clark Duncan has taken, he sends it into the other guy. But as you think about the capacity, mercy is this. It's this absorbing the hurt and taking the hurt and saying, okay, I have to, or you have to, or somebody has to take the blame and pay the cost. But who's going to do it? And our natural thought is this. It's not my fault. It's your fault. So you have to pay. You have to reconcile. You have to make amends. But what do you do when somebody won't make amends? What do you do when somebody doesn't realize that they've hurt you or offended you? What do you do when you say, but I don't have the capacity to absorb this. I can't afford this financially, emotionally, or physically. And, and I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. As you look there in your notes, we find this next question. But how do we try to? There's some attempts. Four attempts we make at trying to make other people pay. And look at, look at these there in your notes. Number one, how do we make people pay? We want them to feel our pain. If I can get back at you, which is revenge, if I can make you feel my pain, then you'll get it. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the lady uh, that had the, the, the frozen turkey thrown through her windshield, and she said, I, I realized I had to forgive because they would never, ever be able to feel the pain. Even if I threw a frozen turkey through their windshield, <laughs> they're not me, and they would never know my pain. Number two, we try to right the wrong. We take the moral high ground. But even at that, even if you try to, to go ahead and reconcile and, and make things right, it's really hard because you can't turn back time, as Cher would sing. You can't go back and replay those situations and make them right. Number three, we find this. If we try to hold them responsible. Have you ever tried to do that, holding a coworker responsible for something they've done wrong? And it's like they just kind of, they're like a slippery eel. They just kind of like, ooh, they're just kind of like they're Casper the Friendly Ghost. You never can find them when you need to find them. Number four, we try to retain control, and this is a tough one. We handle it by rejection. If I keep you at an arm's length because you hurt me, I will retain control and I will retain my freedom and I'll keep myself from being hurt by rejecting you. 
As you look at there, there's that statement right at the end of your notes there. All we're doing is deferring the cost. We're pushing the cost off. And what happens is this. We can go through a lifetime of struggling because we're always trying to find out, well, it's their fault and they have to pay. And the truth of the matter is it is true. They hurt you. We're not going to debate that, that issue. You have been hurt, and it's a legitimate issue. But somewhere, somebody has to absorb the cost. How do we work through that? What's the answer? The answer we find as Jesus talks to the disciples and as he gives this message, as he tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, the answer when we feel mistreated and when we feel things are out of control, the answer is mercy. As we look here in your notes, the Latin word for mercy, mercy is from this Latin word misericordia. If you take your pen, and you can go ahead, we're going to do a little bit of etymology, a little bit of English class. If you hated English class, just, you can check out. you got a free ride until we have donuts here in a minute. But if you enjoy this stuff, take your pen, and I want you to go and look there in your notes, and right between the middle word, the middle of the word, the I and the C, just put a slash. Between miser, misery, and cordia. Now, I'm going to ask you some questions. You can give me feedback here. What's that first word look like? Misery, miserable, right. It's the sense of misery, this sense of the, the literal word there, it's wretched people, it's suffering. And we don't like suffering, we don't like misery. The word cordia is what we find our word concord. If you, if you drive out Route 1, you'll hit Concordville. And Concordville Pike, if you go out that way, the word, we don't really use the word concord today. We might talk about the word accord, or more often we talk about discord, but the word concordia means to have harmony. That it's this understanding, and, and we, we do a lot of music here in the beginning. You can play one note, and it's all by itself. But if you play another note, you have three options with that other note. You can either play another note, like on the, on the, on the guitar or on the piano, there's octaves. You can play a middle C, and then you can play a high C. That's the same note, but it's just a higher octave. So it's the same thing, same exact thing. Or you can play two different notes, and they can clash with each other. Have you ever heard somebody uh, playing two different notes at the same time? They clash, and our mind naturally wants to resolve that. We don't like discordant music. Or we can play two different notes, but they complement each other. They are in what we say is harmony. As you look there in your notes, mercy is this. It's harmony through suffering. It's having harmony through suffering. And you say, well, what, what exactly does that mean? We're going to really dive into that here in just a moment this morning. But as you consider, mercy is this process of harmony through suffering. And there's, there's really three different ways. You can go ahead and just jot down, this down in the side of your notes. There's really, it's harmony within ourselves. And we'll talk about that. The relationship between our head and our heart and the harmony that we can have physically, scientifically speaking. There's harmony that we can have with other people in the suffering we go through. And most importantly, there's harmony and peace we can have with God as we process through our suffering that we struggle with. As you look on the second page of your notes there this morning, mercy brings harmony when we release the hurt. Mercy, when we show mercy towards somebody else, when we show mercy and have a merciful attitude in our life, mercy, and we'll go ahead and put it up there on the screen, JJ Forrest, mercy brings harmony when we release the hurt. Again, the problem is this. It's difficult for us at times. If we don't have that slide, it's my fault. I'll just give it to you. The blank there is mercy brings harmony when we release the hurt. H-U-R-T, when we release the hurt. 
the difficulty for us is this, is how do we release hurt when we come to this point where we find ourselves saying, but it's not fair. If you look there in your notes, you can take your Bibles and turn to uh, the book of Matthew. Later on, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, Peter comes to Jesus, and he has the same exact question. Jesus, what do I do when somebody's just giving me the stiff arm and somebody's really hurt me? How do I handle this situation? We talked about unfair treatment last week and that we have to appeal to God and we have to appeal to authority and that we allow other people to continue down the road. We don't have to get revenge because God will get revenge. But what do we do for this next step? How do we handle this issue of mercy? And Peter asked Jesus this question in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. It says, Then Peter came to him, speaking of Jesus, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. And we'll stop there for just, we'll go ahead and actually put that up on the screen there for us. What's interesting about this is Peter's coming, and he says here, till I give him seven, forgive him seven times. Well, the whole thought that is here is, we say, well, where does he pull seven from? Is it it's just an arbitrary number? Well, back in the Old Testament, the, the prophets and uh, Amos, he, he preached the message, and he said that God would show mercy to Israel's enemies two times, but if they hurt them a third time at three times, God would stop showing mercy to Israel's enemy and he would punish them. So from that, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, they thought, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll say this. You can, based off of God's treatment of Israel's enemies, you can forgive somebody three times, but we'll go ahead and say four times. So according to the religious leaders, they said four times is really good. And after four times, then you can go ahead and just, just smack somebody back. If they hit you four times, after the fourth time, you can go ahead and hit them back. You can respond. So Peter is kind of saying, Jesus, I'm going to really, really like, like sound really good that I'm being very gracious and very merciful seven times. What's interesting is the verses before this, and I've talked about this before, that Jesus uses a lot of hyperbole. He exaggerates. Not that he's lying, but to get a point across to illustrate a principle and a life lesson, he uses exaggeration and hyperbole. And, and the verses just prior to this, he says, if your eye offends you, pull it out. If, you, if you're looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at, if you're coveting things that you, that you can't have, take your eye out. If you have a problem with stealing things, go ahead and cut your hand off because it's better to go into heaven with one eye and one hand than to go to hell with both eyes and both hands. So here he again is employing this hyperbole. And Jesus says to Peter, I say not unto you until seven times, but until 70 times seven. So if we use some mathematics here, what's seven times 70? 490, 490 times. Now, here's the next question. If Jesus is using hyperbole and the, God says, after three times, I'm going to go ahead and smack down Israel's enemies. And the Pharisees say, after four times, we can go ahead and smack down our enemies. And Peter says, after seven times, we can go ahead and smack down our enemies. And Jesus is saying, after 490 times, is Jesus saying the 491st time that your enemy does something, you can go ahead and smack them down? You go from three to four to seven to 490? Is that what he's saying? No. He's trying to illustrate for us this principle as we'll look here, he jumps right in in verse 23 then. He says to forgive them 70 times 7, and then he opens up with a story. I love these. Jesus tells lots of stories. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a window for us to be able to see through to gain understanding. The parable of the unmerciful servant. In verse 23, he says the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you see in Scripture where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, 
What he's saying is this is God's practices for life or God's protocol that if God were setting up his government, if he was the president of the United States, if he was the one that was going to set up his rule, these would be the laws of the land. This is how God would govern things. So he says the, the rules of the land, this is the kind of life we want to live, is likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. That is, he has servants who have, they get paid by him, and, they, and as we're going to find in this case, they're going to borrow money from him as well and owe him. So he's taking an accounting. He goes to his banker, his accountant, and says, okay, we've got to settle up our books. In verse 24, he says, And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is a weight of gold or silver. It's a weight of measurement. But as far as wages would go, as you see here, and your notes are up on the screen, it's equivalent to 160,000 years' worth of wages. So figure out whatever you make in a year's time, whatever your pay is. So if you make... 25000 a year or $42,000 a year or $60,000 or $100,000 a year. Multiply that times 160,000 years. That's what this guy owed. Now, here's some questions I have as we look at this, and, and we're kind of studying this verse out. If this is literally what this guy owed his boss, there's a couple of things we have to think about. First of all, what was he doing and spending money on that he had to borrow 160,000 years worth of, of income from his boss for, that he blew all that money that he owed his boss back. So either he was into gambling or maybe he was into real estate investment and he made some bad investments or who knows what. But I would like to think that Jesus is using this as, again, a far exaggeration for us to be able to illustrate and understand what he's talking about. Because 160,000 years worth of work is almost incomprehensible. So he goes on and what we find is this. He says he owes him 10,000 talents and in verse 25, the king uh, comes and he says to his servant, we find there, if we can go ahead uh, on to the next uh, verse, verse 25, but for as much as he had not to pay, so this guy has no money to pay his boss back, the Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and, to be, and payment to be made. We don't really have this, this kind of thing in our society today, but there's something called debtor's prison. And what we find back in those days, what they would do is if somebody owed another person money, and they couldn't pay the money up, the person who was owed the money to them, they would tell the other individual, okay, I'm going to send you to prison, to the workhouses, and you're going to have to work it off. So you don't have the freedom anymore. You're going to be pulled away from your family. You're going to be put in a work warehouse and, and do hard labor to be able to work the, work the money off until what you owe me is paid. So the debt was so great that he said, it's not going to be just you by yourself. It's going to be your wife, she's going to have to go to work, your kids are going to be sold into slavery, and everything you own, your house and all your possessions will be sold until you can make the payment. If this guy owes 10,000 talents, is it even possible in a lifetime to pay that back? No, it's impossible. Is he ever going to get out of prison? No. How is this going to affect his marriage? Probably not going to have a good marriage. How is it going to affect his kids? Probably not going to help his kids. How is it going to affect his, his economic status? Not good. In verse 26, we find this right here in the middle. The servant, therefore, his response is he, fall, he falls down. So he falls flat on his face. I mean, this is bad. He worships the, 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 his boss, basically. He's begging him and says, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Now think about where this guy's mindset is at. He owes 10000 Modern-day equivalent, if you try to work the money out, it would be close to $7 billion. Can you imagine, like, if you had $7 billion, you're just like, you know what, just kill me now. 
All right, I'm just going to eat my last meal. I'm going to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and then drive off a cliff because I'm done, right? So he says to his Lord, he, he, he's all about survival here. Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. Is that even possible? Is he really going to be able to pay his boss back? Probably not. Now, he, he might work for his boss the rest of his life and never retire, but is he probably, unless he wins the lottery or something crazy happens, he's probably, it's, it's not going to happen. So what does the boss do? We go to verse 27, and look how the boss responds to him. Then the Lord, and again, this is a parable. We're not talking about, about God or Jesus. This is just the master, the boss, the employer. The Lord of the servant, of the employee, was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him his debt. That's crazy. You've never had Discover Card or MasterCard or Visa call you and say, hey, you owe us a lot of money, but... We really like you, and so here you go. We're going to write you a love letter and tell you you're forgiven, and everything's good. And we're going to spray some perfume in there to make you feel good and send you a box of chocolates. No, you're not going to get that from the credit card company. You're not going to get your mortgage companies or your rent. A landlord's not going to say, hey, we're just feeling really generous this month. We're going to give you a pass. No, they're not going to do that. But for whatever reason, this, this boss, this employer, he is moved Jeremiah uses this phrase, he says, God let my eyes affect my heart. What's amazing about this, there's a website called heartmath.com. Heartmath.com is a conglomeration of about 40 years of scientific research about the head-heart combination. And so when we talked about earlier that mercy is that misericordia, the word cordia also has this connotation of our heart, our core, our, our, uh, the uh, cardiologist, the word we get cardiologists is from this. And so what they found with this research and study was that your, your brainwave activity is very much reading and interacting with your heartbeat activity. And so your heartbeat, when your heartbeat starts to go up and your, and your heartbeat starts to race and your pulse goes up, what ends up happening is your heart is sending these electromagnetic pulses to your brain saying, hey, we need some help down here. Like, we need to a, 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 a flush the system with adrenaline or with cortisol. Help us get through this here. We're having like a panic attack or we're, we're, we're under some stress. And so if you've ever heard people talk about meditation or having breathing exercises, uh, the breathing exercises you go through, ladies, if you, for your kids, you know, when you're in labor. And so what we find here is this, this compassion side of things. What's interesting is they found this, that your head has uh, brainwave activity. There's electromagnetic pulses. And your brain, the activity there could run a small, like a ceiling fan. But your heart activity is 5,000 times stronger the capacity for your heart to pump that electricity, that energy. Our heart pumps about 11,000 quarts of blood a day. That's, that's active. If you hooked up your heart to an elevator, you could take an elevator from the first floor up to the ninth floor in about an hour. That's the strength of your heart pumping like it does. When somebody is around you and you say, man, I don't get some good vibrations like the Beach Boys. I don't get good vibrations here from them. They found, scientists have found that you can feel somebody's heartbeat. You can feel their electromagnetic activity up to five to ten feet away. So when you're with somebody and you say, man, that gives me the creeps. Or if you're, if you're saying, like, I don't think they have a good aura around them. Or you say, I don't see the halo. Or however you want to say it. Or biblically speaking, they don't have a good spirit. What you're literally feeling is they have their heartbeat. You can feel that. You've heard the phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, that's where that comes from as well. That our heart and our heart rhythm, 
when it's not feeling good, when it's erratic. This is what a frustrated heart feels like or looks like. If you're going to hook your heart up and look at your heartbeat activity, this is what frustration looks like. And you find that it's erratic and it goes up and down, up and down. And what this does to our heart is it puts so much stress on our heart that it causes all kinds of problems. I've got a couple of resources and information. There's some on, uh, on the third page. There's some of this information. There's websites for you. But John Hopkins University, they did studies about our heart, and they found that people that struggle with intense stress and frustration, that they're more prone to cardiac problems and heart disease than people who don't have stressful situations. What they found was this. In Huffington Post, they said, if you forgive forgiveness, there's eight different positive results for forgiveness. One of the things that they found not just is your heart impacted when you have frustration, but they did a study and found that a 61% of cancer patients were willing to say they struggled with unforgiveness, that they had a problem with forgiveness. And of 61% of those patients who had cancer connected with unforgiveness, 50% of those people said they had actively negative bad home relationship situations where they had bad relationships with people. And they connected the dots between cancer and our heart and our emotions were impacted. When you look and you find this is what somebody's heart rate looks like when they're frustrated, when somebody on the flip side, though, positive emotions like joy and love, and when you feel cared for, when you feel appreciation, this is what our heart looks like, our heartbeat, our heart rate. So if you look at these two different what do you see about them? What's different about them? One's smooth and kind of consistent. The other one's jagged and erratic. If you're frustrated, you say, well, what, what does that look like? I've never been frustrated. I don't know what you're talking about. It's like trying to drive with your foot on the gas pedal and on the brake pedal. It's not good for gas efficiency. It's real, it's real jerky. Start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. And it's not efficient on our body. And what they found is this, is when our heart is like this, and we walk, we actually, I've said this before, but our emotions are contagious. You ever found if somebody starts yelling at you, what do you do back? Well, you start yelling at them. Why? Well, they can't hear me. And I didn't want to make sure that they can hear me. And so when we have this frustration, this jagged up and down, it wears on us. Being mindful. If you've seen, walk, walk through any bookstores today, the concept of mindfulness and meditation is starting to be really, really popular right now. Appreciation. What the Bible would call meditation or prayer puts our heartbeat in this rate, in this stance. What's also interesting is this frustration. Our body goes into survival mode, so it's all about us. When we have appreciation, it opens up our eyes. When our heart and our head are doing well, our heart, by the way, talks a lot more to our head, to our brain, than our brain does to our heart. Because the heart is, is like that engine. It's telling, telling the rest of the body what to do and where to send things. What we find is this, is when you have a sense of appreciation, you can stop worrying about and stressing and trying to be in survival mode for you, for this, and you can begin to start caring for other people, which is called compassion. So the servant comes to his Lord and says, please, 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 help me, help me, help me. He's stressed out. This is the heart rate of the servant. And when the Lord, the boss, the employer comes, and he says, I'm going to have compassion. This is the heart rate of the Lord, of the employer. 
And we get this. We understand this without even knowing any science. We get this. This makes sense. And what we find is this. The servant, he begs for forgiveness. In verse 28, though, watch what happens. The next scene unfolds. The servant goes out, and instead of saying, hey, let's have a party, I've just been forgiven this massive debt, he goes out and finds one of his fellow servants, which owed him 100 pence. 100 pence is about 100 denier. A denier is one day's worth of wages. This would be equivalent to about four months' worth of pay. It would be roughly about $10,000, ten dollars to $11,000, or whatever you would make in about four months. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe me. As you look at this story, you run the parallels. The Lord says to his servant, you owe me 10,000 talents. Pay me what you owe me. The servant now goes to a fellow servant and says, you owe me 100 denarii, 100 pence. Pay me what you owe me. In the first scenario, what happens? The servant begs and pleads, please forgive me. Look what happens in verse 29. Let's see what unfolds here. You know where this is going. The fellow servant fell down. If we look back a few verses before, we see that the first servant falls down as well at his Lord's feet and besought him. Remember in the first scenario, he worshiped the Lord. He begged him, saying, and these are verbatim, the words, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. The same exact thing that the first servant said to his master as what a fellow servant is telling his servant. But watch, in verse 30, he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. That's not cool to put it in our, in our vernacular. That doesn't make sense. That's not right. And we look at a sense of last week, a sense of fairness and justice, and we say, what's the deal? That's not fair. And, and I've, I've processed this, and I'd love for you to, to talk, we'll talk about this in our discussion groups today, because maybe, maybe you have some insight on this. I'm trying to wrap my mind around and think, what's going on in this man's life that he's not willing to turn around and give mercy when he was shown a massive amount of mercy? Why can't he show just a little bit of mercy? What was taking place? Was he trying to find money to gamble or pay or do something? What, what was the deal? Why wouldn't he give somebody else a break? Well, as we find this and we go on, we see this. In verse 31, we see he has no compassion. He's got more of the frustration, not the appreciation. In verse 31, so the fellow servants saw what was done. So everybody else is watching what's going on. All the other employees, they're like around the water cooler. They're on Snapchat saying like, what's the deal? What up, yo? You know, what's going on here? And they were very sorry. Just like the rest of us, your heart breaks and you think, that's, that's not fair. That's not right. And they came and told their Lord all that was done. So these guys, they send it up the flagpole and they say, hey, here's what's going on at work down on the, down on the workshop floor. In verse 32, his Lord, after, he, after that he had called him, so the boss hears what's happening. He calls the servant and says to him, you wicked lowlife, scum of the earth, lousy you're so low you couldn't walk under a snake's belly with your hat on. <laughs> like, low. I forgave you all your debt because you desired. That is, you begged me to forgive you. In verse 33, would you not have also had compassion 
that is mercy on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you. Somebody has, when it comes to mercy, somebody has to absorb the cost. In the first scenario, the Lord said 10,000 talents. I'm going to go ahead and put it in my checkbook as a write-off. It's a loss, but I'm going to absorb that. I'm going I'm I'm to take the cost on me, what you owe me. This servant says to a fellow servant, I'm going to make you pay. I'm not going to absorb the cost. You owe me. And what we find then is this. In verse 34, the Lord was wrought. That's, he's angry, righteously angry. And he delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. That is, he sent him to debtor's prison. And watch what Jesus says. Listen to Jesus. Jesus always has a wrap-up. Here's the moral of the story. Here's the, you know, G.I. Joe, a real American hero. Watch that show as a kid. And they always had this like, and here's the lesson today, kids, or He-Man. Here's the, here's the moral of the story today. Here's Jesus' moral of the story. We find that in verse 35. He goes on then to say, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. That's tough. So we go back to the original question this morning. How much mercy should I show people who've hurt me? And Jesus kind of like lays it out and says, if you don't show people mercy, God's not going to show you mercy. Now, what I want to clarify for us here is this. We're not talking about salvation, first of all. Once you're saved, you're good to go. You're in heaven. But the goal is this that we live according to those heavenly principles so that we don't live on earth like we're living in hell, but we live on earth like we're living in heaven. And so he says, the, the previous verse, verse 34, where he's delivered to tormentors, he's in pain and agony, and he has all these problems. We're going to talk about what does that look like today? Does God deliver people to tormentors? Does God send down like, okay, they didn't forgive. I need a couple of demons to go ahead and torment these people down there on earth because they're horrible. Does God do that? I don't believe so. Not necessarily. Maybe he does. I don't know. But what I believe is this, and we're going to see some biblical principles from this, that when we stop forgiveness in our lives, and we'll look at this process, this mercy that God shows us, we ask God, God is the Lord in the story. And this is us. And this is others. When God shows us mercy, God says you need to pay it forward. Because in order for you to know my mercy, it's not finished there. In order for you to understand my mercy, it can't stop with you. It has to continue on with you to other people. The problem is, what about these other people? What do we do when other people don't pass it on to somebody else? And what what do we do when other people aren't asking for God for mercy from Him? What do we do when it stops there? How does that work? We're going to talk about it in just a minute. Because what do you do when somebody, you have a bad relationship, it falls out, you have a bad work relationship, uh, you have a spouse or a friend or a loved one, somebody that's treating you unfairly and say, like, I want to forgive them, I want to love them, but it's just not working, Pastor Matt. Like, they're uh, being abusive or they're hurting me or they're saying things to me or things are taking place and it's not fair. So can't I just stop being merciful to them? We're going to look at why we can't stop but also how we reconcile. If you, if you remember from, and we'll really dive into this, the Lord says to his servant, you're forgiven. The servant says to his fellow servant, you're not forgiven. There are boundaries and limitations to mercy. There are some guidelines to mercy, and we're going to look at those in just a minute. 
The mercy was only limited for that servant as long as he was able and willing to pass it on to somebody else. When he stopped passing on mercy that he received to somebody else, the Lord said, okay, my mercy ceases for you. So when you think about your relationships and you say, but what about other people? Do I have to be merciful to them? Let's just jump in and we'll look at our notes here on the third page. So what? To get mercy, we have to be willing to give mercy. How do I show mercy when I've been hurt? First of all, we find there's seven guidelines for mercy that we show other people. The first guideline is this. Ask God for mercy. I can't give mercy on my own. We first start here. We have to ask, just like in that story, the servant had to ask the Lord for mercy. Please forgive me. I beg of you. Please be patient with me. We have to ask God for mercy. If we're struggling trying to show mercy to other people, step one is to start with God. God, I need your mercy in my life. I need your forgiveness in my life. Number two is this. We find conduct daily evaluations. I say daily evaluations of what? Be honest about your relationship with God. Be honest about your sin. We have this thing with, with our kids. Amanda, she and I uh, journal in the morning. So we'll, she'll uh, sit down. She's really, really faithful about it. She'll go ahead and write down some prayer requests. And then she'll write down what she's learned in the Bible. And then we're uh, teaching the kids how to do this. So first step is something we're thankful for. The second step is something we need to ask forgiveness for. And the third step is something we ask God uh, for, like a, a, just a request. And so it's, I'm, I'm listening to my kids as they're doing this. And, and the other day, we're sitting there. And I'm reading, doing my stuff. And I hear one of the kids Hey, Dad, what should I write down for number two? Well, what's number two? Something I did wrong or I, shouldn't, I should have done that I didn't do. Okay. Anything happened yesterday? Did you get in trouble at all? Um, no, I don't remember anything. Hey, and then the, the comment was, hey, let me, let me pinch you so-and-so so that I can go ahead and write down that I did something bad. If you, if you struggle to think about, man, I really haven't done anything wrong, you're not being honest with yourself. If we walk through life, man, I'm really good. I'm not prejudiced. I'm not racist. I'm fair. I'm just. I, I, I do things. I am honest, and I don't lie. Let's really, really be honest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, the, the Bible is sharper than a two-edged sword, that it divides between joints and marrow and the thoughts and intents of our heart. Jesus says this, that you've heard, and later on in Matthew chapter 5, he says that you've heard, if, if you hate your brother in your heart, it's as though you've murdered your brother. And you've heard of old time, back in the Old Testament, you weren't supposed to commit adultery. But I tell you that if you look at somebody and lust after them, that you've committed adultery in your heart, so he ups the ante. If we say, well, I really have a good relationship with God, we're, we're really got to be careful that we keep a clean slate with God. It's like every morning we've got a, a chalkboard that's full of different things that we say, okay, God, please forgive me for having a bad attitude or for lusting or for lying or for getting angry or for, for calling somebody out. Because what we do is we clean up the pipeline here. We clean up God's flow of his mercy to us so that when people offend us and hurt us, we have a clear pipeline to be able to give them mercy. When we don't have a right relationship and, and conduct daily evaluations with God, you say, why daily? Because I don't, I don't want to have to deal with stupid people and get upset with people. Because when I don't deal with God, I don't have the capacity to deal with people. We go on to number three, harness mercy's power. The more I know mercy, the more I'll be able to show mercy. Again, when you lock in and realize that God has forgiven us 10,000 times what other people have done to us, it's all about our focus. Yes, people have hurt you. Yes, people have done stuff to you. And they will continue. People will continue to do stuff to us. But when we consider what God has forgiven us, the immense amount of what God has forgiven us, 
compared to what people are, have done to us, God is, is says, I forgive you so much. Be willing to forgive other people. And you say, but I can't, I struggle. Then we have to put our focus, focus first on this list. Focus first on our connection to God. And then with time, again, all this stuff we've been talking about for these last four or five weeks, it's all about time. You will not be able to walk out of here today. My, my hunch is this, for any one of us, we'll not be able to walk out of here today going, okay, Dorothy and Toto, let's go down the yellow book road because I got everything all squared away. It's going to take time. But realize that mercy has incredible power. When we know God's mercy, we can show mercy. Now, this is the, this is the real kicker with all this. We're sitting here, we're saying, okay, but do I just, do I just let everything go and just forgive everybody? And just let people walk all over me and, and stay in a bad relationship, stay in a bad work situation, just let people abuse me. The answer is yes and no. Yes in that you take the mercy God has given you and you show mercy to other people. But what happens here, look at this, uphold mercy's limits, number four. Uphold mercy's limits. It only works when it is reciprocated. Let's jump back to our story for just a minute about the unmerciful servant. The Lord says to his servant, you're forgiven. Here's mercy. The servant says to his fellow servant, you're not forgiven. What happens? Does the Lord, the boss, the employer come back and say, oh, that's okay, because that's just between you guys. It's just between your relationship and my relationship. So you can do whatever you want to with other people, but when it concerns our relationship, we're good to go. No. He says, your relationship with other people is directly connected to your relationship with me. It's what we've talked about before. It's our vertical relationship, our connection, our love to God is going to be an outflow of our horizontal connection to other people. When we don't show love to other people, God says, I'm going to cut off the flow. What happens is that's to us, but it also happens in other people's lives. So the person, the coworker, the former boss that you had, the uh, ex-spouse, uh, the relationship that didn't work, whatever, the, the person in your life, when they're not reciprocating mercy toward us, when they're not engaging mercy toward us, they will not have the capacity to continue on in your relationship. And at that point, you, you move on, you separate for a time until they can come back around. At that point, you look to go ahead and get another job if it's, if it's feasible, if it works out for you. But at that point, when they will not reciprocate mercy, you stand back, and we'll talk about this point in just a minute, you, let, or you release them and let them go. Because God will now deal with them, as we saw in the story, to deliver them to the tormentors. And we'll talk about what that looks like in a minute. Look there in your notes. Mercy turns, turns to meanness in the lives of those who don't show mercy. You ever met somebody and they say, oh yeah, I have a similar background like you. I have a similar upbringing like you. My parents you know, did this or that or whatever the situation might be. And you think, well, I think that you would be a little more empathetic toward me. And they're not and they're mean. It's because they never processed and showed mercy to other people. Mercy when it's shown to somebody, and when they don't reciprocate it to other people, you're shown mercy by God, and you show mercy to other people, and those people, when they don't process it and show mercy to other, mercy turns into meanness. They turn into really, really mean people. As you look at your notes there, compassion turns into cruelty. Somebody who says, well, I got through it, why can't you? That's not mercy. That's cruelty. Redemption changes into resentment. They resent God, they resent people. Why? Because mercy has got a backlog, it's stopped. Forgiveness develops into fear. That servant ends up being given over to the tormentors. Grace becomes a grudge. And what happens is this. Appreciation 
turns into frustration. And all those things we talked about. So you say, well, what happens with this person? And they're not reciprocating. They're not working. This is where they're at. And when I start to change my thinking about previous employers I've had and relationships that haven't worked out, and I've done my very best to put the ball in their court, to show mercy and to forgive, and I think, but they're not reciprocating it back to me. So what do I do? You just continue to love, but you move on. Because what happens is this. God will deal with them. They're going to have frustration in their life. And give it some time. You say, but they seem like they're increasing in their business and everything's going fine for them. It's not fair. Give it time. Give it time. Cruelty will come out. Meanness will come out. Frustration will come out. Fear will come out. Uh, resentment will come out. Grudges will come out. With time, they will not be healthy people. And it's sad to say that frustration will lead to physical difficulties and health issues, and they'll begin to show up in their body. When we don't have appreciation and love and care and concern for people, we have this frustration, and it'll start to work its way out in our health. As you look there, number five, what we've all been talking about up to this point, release people who cannot reciprocate mercy. Release them. You don't have to, to, to you say, do I have to go on vacation with them? No, don't go on vacation with them. Do I have to go ahead and go out to have a meal with them? No, you've forgiven them. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, as much lies within you, have peace with all people. But if there's somebody who you say, I've tried to work things out and they just will, they dig their heels in. You try once, you try twice, you try three times. And you say, I forgive you, but now the ball's in your court. You, you do the best you can. If they come back around and say, hey, please forgive me, I'm sorry. Okay, you pick up the relationship there and you have reconciliation. But if they are not willing to deal, you, you can't, the Eagles can't have a line of scrimmage if there's nobody else on the other line. If you've got a situation with somebody and they're not willing to deal, you show mercy and then you, just move, you continue to move on to the next step in your life. Number six, develop the muscle of mercy. What, what we're finding here is those events are going to culminate, 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 culminate. They're going to happen and it's going to have to strengthen and exercise your muscle to have a greater capacity because if you had one relationship that went bad, most likely you're going to have other people that are going to hurt you and situations where you're going to have to express mercy. So learn with these people the first time around. Because what happens is it's like a practice. It's like a mulligan. When somebody treats you unfairly and God says, okay, show them mercy, you exercise that muscle. So the next time when somebody else hurts you or another situation happens, you can begin to exercise that muscle and you're not surprised the next time somebody hurts you. I wish I could stand here today and tell you that from this point on, from this day on, you'll never have any more problems. I wish I could tell you that. But the truth is until the day you die or Jesus comes and raptures us home, we're going to be hurt and have to express mercy to people. It's going to be a part of this process, but it's a maturing process. Number seven then, and here's a kicker. This wraps it all up. Remember, mercy only takes one person to express it. It only takes one person. We ask God for mercy, and God, he expresses it to us. We show mercy to other people, but here's the deal. Look at the rest of the statement there. Reconciliation, though, takes two willing parties to embrace it. And if you have somebody who's not willing to reconcile, that's okay. But on your part, you continue to show and express and exercise mercy. Why? Because you want God's mercy in your life. Otherwise, you have the resentment, the bitterness, the guilt, the fear, and the frustration. As we wrap up this morning, we'll talk about a brief story real quick here. We'll go ahead and, uh, JJ, if you can put the picture up here uh, for a minute. Uh, did we have that last... Uh, statement, go ahead back there for just a minute. 
Go ahead, one more before that. Uh, that's my fault. I did a great job putting the PowerPoint together this week. My fault. So number seven, did you get that? Number seven, remember. Is the blank there for us? Remember, mercy takes only one person. All right. You can go ahead and pull up the picture. This is a guy by the name of Nick Vujicic. Nick was born to Yugoslavian parents in December of 1982. And as you can see, he was born without arms or legs. And I don't know if you can see in the one. Nope, you need a picture. But he, well, yeah, in this one right here, you can see he's got a small foot and two little toes. When Nick was born, his, his parents, they were immigrants from Yugoslavia. They're Christians. And when communism came into Yugoslavia, because they wouldn't go along with the communist party and the communist ways, they were uh, refugees from Yugoslavia and they ended up in Australia. Nick was born in Melbourne, uh, Melbourne, Australia. When his mom was going through the nine-month pregnancy process, they checked, everything checked out. They said, you're going to have a beautiful baby boy. She was a nurse who worked in the labor and delivery ward at the hospital. So she had seen literally thousands of births in her career. And so she was so excited because she knew that this would be their first child and this would be the start of their family. And so when Nick was born and when he, he came out, when he was delivered, she asked the doctors, is he okay? And they didn't respond. And so the doctors wrapped him up quickly and took him over to the corner to do some examination. The nurses walked over and they were whispering. And Nick's dad came in and he said, what's going on? And he walked over and looked and saw that he didn't have an arm. And so he said, what's the deal? And he was overcome by frustration and fear and worry. And so he left the room because he didn't want to worry his wife. By the time he came back in, the doctors and nurses broke the news to Nick's mom. Her name is Dushka. And she was so upset, she started to cry. And she said, I don't want to see him. I don't want to hold him. I don't want to be anywhere near him. Take him, get him away from me. And his dad's name is Boris. And Boris came in and said, I'm, I wish you would have waited and let me tell my wife so I can break the news to her. And they were so angry with God. What did we do to deserve a child who was handicapped like this? How are we going to take care of him? How are we going to provide for him? They considered adoption, to give him up for adoption, because they just didn't know how they would be able to take care of him. And they both didn't have uh, high-paying jobs. And they were, with the medical expenses and all that was involved, they just didn't know what to do. They considered giving him to their either a set of uh, grandparents on either side of the family and seeing if their parents could raise Nick. But his dad was a teacher by trade and a pastor part-time. And he said, listen, God's not going to give us anything that we cannot handle. And so they decided to go ahead and raise Nick as they raised him, by the time he turned about 13, they started sharing with Nick and saying, this is some of the emotions we felt. And they started to talk through and process his story and all that took place in his growing up years. And he said he, he at times, even as a young child, would have these just massive bouts of depression, wanting to kill himself because he didn't look like other people. And God, why would you give this situation to me? Why would you do this to me? Why would you let this happen to me? allowing other people to stare at me and nobody to accept me and being stuck in a wheelchair like this. But he said this in his story, Life Without Limits, that is God didn't give him limbs. God gave him a limitless capacity for joy and for confidence and for hope. He finally realized going up through his elementary years that in order for him, he had to become social. He had to talk. And he said he knew classmates would have questions, so he started talking to them and, and explaining things like how he brushed his teeth and how he got up in the morning and, and when he would lie down, how he would go ahead and, and get himself up so he could sit upright. And so he started talking to people about things. And the more he talked to his friends about things, the more he inspired them the fact that he didn't give up and that he pushed through and that God gave him something that he could handle. 
And so he started telling his story to uh, groups, uh, different uh, school groups and clubs, and then he started speaking to youth groups, and then he started uh, speaking to uh, different uh, church groups. And he got to the point where he realized that he loved speaking and loved encouraging people. One day he was speaking to a crowd of about 300 people, and he said he was going through the story as he had always told it, and he said all, the, all of a sudden, right in the middle of his speech, this girl, about halfway back, she just broke down sobbing, and it was so loud and, and so much of a breakdown that kind of just everybody kind of looked over at her. And he said it disrupted his, his train of thinking, so he kind of stopped and let her take a moment. And he said the, the weirdest thing happened. She raised her hand, and he kind of said, oh, yeah, can I, can I help you? Like, what's going on? She said, can I ask you to do me a favor? Like, what's a guy without arms and legs going to do? You know? So he says, yeah, sure. And she says, can I come give you a hug? So she approached the stage, came up, and she whispered in his ear and said, nobody has ever told me what you just told me. Nobody's ever told me that I'm beautiful. Nobody's ever told me that God had a plan for my life. Nobody's ever told me that God hasn't given me something I can't handle. And thank you for telling me that. She gave him a big hug. He said it was the best hug he'd ever received in his life. And at that point, he realized that his calling could become a career. He says, your calling is when you can do something without even thinking about it and you enjoy it, but a career is when people actually pay you to do that. And so he went on his life and became a, a, a motivational speaker and an evangelist. He moved to California. He went to a church called Not Avenue Church. And he got there uh, that Sunday morning and he came in. His worship time was already going. And he said as he came in on his, on his wheelchair, he saw a, an older guy over off to the corner. And he called and said, hey, Nick, Nick. And he said, well, I didn't really know these people. So I thought maybe they were talking to somebody else. You've ever been in a situation like that where somebody calls a name and you're like, oh, Matt. Uh, uh, no, it's another Matt, you know. Or somebody waves and you wave back, but they're waving to somebody behind you and you feel like, oh, I feel really stupid. He said it was one of those situations. So he turned away and the guy kept calling, Nick, Nick. And so he saw the guy pick up this little baby and kind of show him up over the crowd. And he, and he pointed to this little boy, this little blonde-haired kid. So he kind of came over in his wheelchair and the guy says, we couldn't wait for you to get here. This is Daniel. Daniel has the same syndrome that you have. The syndrome, this rare disease that Nick has, there's only seven people in the world that the doctors know of that have this same syndrome. And so Nick came and he talked to the parents, the Martinez parent, the family, and when he stood up on the stage that day, he asked Daniel's, Daniel's father if he could come up to the stage and join him. And he said, I want you to show the rest of the crowd your son. So they unwrapped him out of the blanket and he said, ladies and gentlemen, when I was growing up, I was begging God for mercy to take my life or to magically give me limbs the next day. And when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd hold my eyes tight, closed, and I'd look, and there would be no arms and no legs there. And I'd beg God for a miracle. And he said, I come here today, and I found that instead of God giving me a miracle, God made me a miracle for somebody else. And Daniel's parents said, you have no idea how thankful we are for you because we have no idea how we could get through raising Daniel and going through all these things. About a year later, Daniel was starting to grow up and he started to become a little bit heavier for the parents to deal with and the, uh, to carry around, and so they wanted to get him in a wheelchair. But the insurance company and the medical profession said he he's doesn't have the capacity to do that. We don't want to invest the money and spend 
literally tens of thousands of dollars on a customized piece of equipment that he's not going to be able to have the capacity to use. So Nick was there with his parents, and his parents were talking to Daniel's parents and just kind of coaching them through things. And Nick says, well, this is, this is nonsense. I'm here in the wheelchair. Let me hop down and let Daniel hop in and see if he can do the wheelchair as a toddler the size he is, then why not tell the insurance company to go ahead and invest the money because it's a sure bet. So Nick hopped out of his chair, and Daniel's parents put him in the chair, and sure enough, he took his two little toes, wrapped them around the joystick, and started moving that little wheelchair around. And his parents started crying, and they said, this is, this is what we've been hoping for. You can see Nick. Nick got married. He's got two little kids. He's very athletic. He surfs. He plays sports. He plays soccer. He's done more without arms and legs than most people do with a healthy body. That's mercy. And so you think about your situation, and you think, I need God's capacity and mercy in my life so I can be merciful to other people. And what we see as limits, God says it's actually I've given you a limitless of possibilities. He's written uh, about a dozen or so books. A phenomenal guy. You can hear a story. I'm listening to a story right now, this book, Life Without Limits, Nick Vujicic. It's amazing. He was on Oprah Winfrey's show, actually hopped up the stairs to her stage. You can go online, Google Oprah Winfrey, Nick Vujicic, and see his story and see him climb up the stage. It's, it's powerful watching him. But you think about your situation. We'll go ahead, JJ, pull up that last slide for us. Your story where you say, I, I don't know if I have the capacity, though. If you want to know God's mercy, the way Nick Vujicic knows God's mercy in his life, that the miracle he looked for was actually him being a miracle for somebody else. You can show God's mercy to other people. The stuff you're going through, the frustrations you're going through, it's not just about the people who've hurt you, but it's about other people who are going to be running alongside you who have been hurt just like you, that God can use you to help them know how to be a miracle of mercy to other people. And when we begin to be a miracle of mercy for other people, we realize and understand the full weight of God's mercy in our lives. Let's pray. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I hope it was encouraging and inspiring. If you'd like to know more information about Greater Philly Church, you can go online to greaterphilly.church. You can also find information on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook about the church as well. I'd love to be able to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt, M-A-T-T, Manny, M-A-N-N-E-Y. I've also got a blog with great content that you can find more information about at mattmanny.com. I hope the message today helped you to understand yourself, your relationships, and Jesus better in light of what he's done for you. Thanks so much for listening.